In this podcast, we're taking a dive into the lives of dangerous women of Queensland. And we're not talking about serial killers here. We're talking about strong, fascinating women who forged their way through life with boldness, daring and courage and challenged the status quo to inspire change in Queensland. Women I would like to be more like myself. Dangerous Women is a podcast by the State Library of Queensland, hosted by myself, Holly's Wolf, produced by Snuggletooth Productions and supported by the Queensland Library Foundation's crowd-giving fundraising campaign. Join us as we tell the stories of some of the greatest Queensland women you've never heard of. In our first episode of Dangerous Women, we donned our Cobras and headed out west to meet Keelan Mailman, Australia's first female Indigenous cattle station manager. This time, we're travelling back in time to the 1950s. We're going to slip into something a little more glamorous and slide on down south to the Gold Coast, home of glittering beaches and glittery people, to introduce you to Ivy Hassard. Ivy was an aerobatic pilot, a very funky fashion designer, and was responsible for opening the Gold Coast's first ever fashion boutique and beauty salon. For most of my life, she seemed to me to be invincible. That's Ivy's daughter, Lorene Hassard. Ivy sadly passed away in 1998, so we're interviewing Lorene to find out what made her mother the bold trailblazer she was in fashion and in flying. When I saw the title, I thought, that's her. She would so approve. She'd love to think that there was an interview about her under the heading Dangerous Women. Most history books in the past have been written by men about men which is why it's such an honour to be putting some of Queensland's remarkable women on the map with this podcast. We're using items retrieved from the repository of the John Oxley Library as a starting point for each of these Dangerous Women episodes. So today, I've headed into the Queensland State Library to pour through the Ivy Hassett archives. As research coordinator Chrissy Theodosio says, their collection is fantastic, but as with any history, it's biased and it emits certain people. So we're here to rectify this. It's very exciting because everything's in these boxes and it's all layered inside. There's tissue paper. It's like opening presents, really. The John Oxley Library is amazing because it allows us to travel through time, looking at original materials like diaries, personal belongings, letters and ephemera to bring to life characters from Queensland's past. It feels very top secret too. You're not even allowed a bag or a water bottle in the special collections area. And most of the stuff, you have to handle wearing white gloves. Yeah, the white gloves. Um, I used to be quite enamoured with them, really. That's our guide, Jacinta Sutton, who is a program officer with Queensland Memory and who's taking us through the archives today. When I first started working at the library, we had a white glove session and I kind of covertly put them in my desk drawer and tucked them away because I was just, I found such reverence in using the white gloves. She's also the resident Ivy expert. Ivy's the type of person, like, the more you know about her, the more you fall in love with her. And that's probably my favourite thing about her. When I was a daggy and very uncool kid growing up on the Goldie, my deepest desire was not to be a fashion designer, but rather to be a librarian. So today, going through Ivy's things is like my wet dream come true. And it almost feels naughty, like I'm going through someone's underwear drawer or something. It's quiet in here, 
the light is dim, and I'm quite literally furtively nosing around in her personal belongings to find out what kind of woman Ivy was. I think she took risks. That's what impressed me about her. She had a really strong sense of confidence. Her confidence is represented in these certificates of her as a pianist, of the, um, the fashion that she designed and created, the fashion shows. Um, she, she seemed to be able to achieve whatever she set her mind to. Ivy's a really great representation of a really multi-dimensional, well-rounded woman. It may only be one box of memories, but it all adds up to one big life. The first item we unwrap is a gorgeous fawn-coloured jacket, carefully preserved in tissue paper. Okay, so this is Ivy's flying jacket that she wore in the 1936 Brisbane to Adelaide air race. She was 22. She had the fastest time for a woman. I think she came in second. It's tiny, obviously made for a young woman with a heart and bones light enough to take to the skies. You can start to kind of get a, a sense of Ivy as this quite petite woman. She was a little pocket rocket. And of course, it's also well fitted to flatter the figure. I can already tell that Ivy's good taste started young, but clearly her tendency to take risks did too. The next thing we come across really paints a picture of the social scene in Ivy's heyday, and it also really tickles my taste buds. It's the menu from one of her fashion events. 1971, November 5th, Surfers Paradise Speed Week, Concours d'Elegance, on the menu. Local prawn cocktail, frappe. Frappe? Is it like a boost juice? <laughs> oh, that would have been gorgeous colour, though. <laughs> There's something that's just so classically Gold Coast about prawns and palm trees and cocktails. And this is from 1975. Oh, look at this. Fresh local prawn cocktail frappe. They just saw a good thing and they just stuck with it. I can picture all the Gold Coast socialites lounging around and spooning prawn cocktails out of elegant glasses and gossiping about what was in and what was out and who was out and who was in and who'd been seen with whom. You've also got a wine list. On the white list, nowadays you would always have a Sauv Blanc. Um, there are three Rieslings and a Moselle. And five different champagnes. Oh, my gosh, how <laughs> fabulous is that? <laughs> I think it's nearly time for us to take a break for lunch. Next, we discover a trumpet-shaped trophy, also wrapped in tissue paper and nestled in its own little box. This is a trophy for the ladies' air race that she won on the 25th of May, 1935. And then there are pages and pages of photos from the various fashion shows Ivy organised and competed in. There's so many photos that really give us a visual to what she achieved in her life. And as soon as I saw them, I just thought, geez, these could be a Vogue magazine last month. They are so current and so modern. And uh, I just think that really speaks to how ahead of her time she was. When I first got this assignment, to be honest, I was a little bit sceptical. I still bear the scars of growing up on the Gold Coast as a highly unfashionable teenager where I was bullied for my op shop clothes. Free dress day was like running the gauntlet. And even today, as a feminist and environmentalist, I'm wary of the fashion industry. But Jacinta sees things a little differently. I think fashion is a reflection of what's going on in our society. I do think it's important for us to express ourselves through 
what we wear. And I think uh, Ivy had a really good sense of that as well and a really good understanding of, you know, fashion being a powerful statement. And what impresses me about Ivy is that she was doing it in the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s and the 1980s. You know, she was doing it for decades at a time where that was like not like expected. And not only was it not expected, but it was not accepted. She's Cher, she's like Cher, you know, a number one in every decade. Unfortunately, just like Cher, we're unable to turn back time and meet Ivy ourselves, but we're very lucky to get the chance to meet her daughter, Loreen, instead. We've tracked Loreen and her wonderful <laughs> laugh down in her Mount Tambourine home where she now lives, after many years overseas. Loreen is delighted to talk to us about her mother and about the early years that helped shape the vibrant and pioneering woman she humbly called Mum. Well, first of all, I think she was the most amazing mother, probably the most fearless person I've ever met in my entire life, and at the same time, the epitome of femininity. She was a great role model, great mentor, great friend, just a joy to be around. I asked Lorene about her earliest memories of Ivy. My earliest memory of her was in beautiful dresses, <laughs> going to parties. <laughs> she always looked beautiful. There was always music. I grew up with George Shearing and Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra. So there was always music in our house and, yeah, laughter and fascinating people. <laughs> Ivy found herself as a single mum at the age of 33, when Loreen was just one year old. Having grown up with a single mum myself, I can vouch for the fact that it can make your mother seem more like a friend than a parent, and I suspect Loreen feels the same. I was raised solely by her. She made up for mother, father, uncle, aunt. <laughs> Divorce was unusual back then, but Ivy realised she was on a different path to her husband, and so the two parted ways. She was going to have many different journeys and she wasn't cut out to be a wife. I can hardly remember her ever making my breakfast. It was at this point that Ivy decided to do something really risky, really wild, really dangerous. In 1947, with three young kids in tow, she walked away from an unsuitable marriage, packed up and moved down to the Gold Coast to start a whole new chapter of her life. Australia's Riviera. Surfers Paradise is thriving on a diet of sunshine, sand and money. Especially money. The exotic population. Women visitors in custom-made beach clothes, occasionally augmented with mink coats and diamonds. Men in swim trunks, picked up in Hawaii or imported from London. Local girls looking like models in locally made cottons. The shops, the milk bars. It's all glamorous and all here. It was a truly charming, delightful seaside village where everybody knew everyone. The neighbours watched out for each other. We could go to sleep with the windows open, the doors unlocked. We had such freedom. There would have been a party at our house every Sunday 
And if there wasn't a party at our house, she was going to some party somewhere. She loved to dance, uh, had a good voice, still played the piano. And of course, her fiancé was this brilliant piano player who had a wicked sense of humour. They were both really charismatic people. So growing up there was fun. Newspaper articles from the time describe Ivy as making a bid to establish surfers' paradise as the beach fashion centre for Australia, as Capri is for the Mediterranean. And sure enough, she did. She opened the first little fashion boutique there in 1947. It was called Exclusive Salon. And initially she would buy uh, clothes from Sydney Inn, but in that time she also decided to design one or two things of her own and she quickly found out that the dresses she was designing were going out of the shop much faster than those she was bringing up from Sydney. Ivy started up her fashion business on the Gold Coast around the same time that Paula Stafford brought the bikini to the golden beaches of Surfers Paradise. I asked Lorraine if the two women were rivals or friends. I grew up with her children. We all went to school together. But Mum and Paula were on different pages altogether. Mum was high fashion, uh, beautiful dresses mainly, and Paula was really strictly bikinis. And neither one liked to be compared to the other. She was instrumental in transforming the coast from a sleepy seaside retreat for wealthy Brisbaneite holidaymakers into a groovy destination. Mm, okay, maybe not groovy. Groovy's a little bit more 70s, isn't it? According to Google, cool was what people said in the 50s, but apparently they said it slowly back then and not in the clip tones we now tend to use. So, Ivy definitely made the coast cool. And mixed with some very cool people too. Female friendships were very important to her. I remember when Margot Kelly, who had the famous, famous restaurant in Surface, Margot Kelly's Hibiscus Room. According to the ANU Dictionary of Biographies, the Hibiscus Room is a hotspot for celebrities and became known as the most sophisticated restaurant on the Gold Coast at the time. Kelly would apparently make an appearance every night dressed in a formal gown with a hibiscus in her hair. She was famous for her taste and style in a place not generally known for either attribute. Margot would ring mum every morning and say, darling, you don't need to get the bulletin because I've heard it all in the restaurant last night, all the gossip, all the news, here it is on the phone. <laughs> and... Uh, Gula Corman, who also had a fashion boutique, was another good friend of mum's who would make her chicken soup when she would um, come down with this chest problem. And, of course, Pearl Goldman was um, the last one of her dear, dear friends here. For those of you who aren't familiar with all of this name-dropping, Gula Corman was a Polish-born entrepreneur and fashion designer related to Stanley Corman the first developer to introduce high-rise buildings and canal development on the coast. And Pearl Goldman? Well, she was one of Norman Lindsay's favourite models. Need I say more? And she said to me, um, darling, your mother and I have secrets that will go to our graves. 
oh, how I'd love to know what they are. (laughs) The same year that Ivy died, I was an awkward teenager about to graduate from my Gold Coast High School. I trekked down to Byron Bay, which was deep, deep hippie town back in the 90s, and bought a tie-dyed purple cloak and a tie-dyed green lace dress to wear to my high school formal, which was held just a stone's throw from where Ivy lived. I cringe at the thought now. But what would Ivy have said about my fashion choices? She probably would have seen in that what you saw. She probably saw the things that attracted you because um, those are lovely fabrics and it was a dress. What she couldn't stand was trousers. (laughs) I don't think she ever owned any any pants, any trousers. Uh, So for her, a woman, you know, needed to be in a dress and a dress that was flattering. This makes me laugh because considering the daring hobbies that Ivy harboured, the practicality of trousers would probably have come in handy at times. She was training to be a concert pianist. And suddenly she saw aeroplanes flying around and decided that's what I really, really want to do and took up flying. I remember my grandfather saying to her, well, this was her story, I'm not paying for music lessons and flying lessons, so you make your choice. So at the tender age of 16, 17, she said, okay, I'm going to choose flying. Having won all these prestigious awards from the Trinity School of Music and, yeah, so she switched to flying. And so in her late teens, Ivy became one of the first female pilots in Australia, specialising in aerobatics. When I first read this in my briefing on Ivy, I assumed it meant doing acrobatics like handstands on the wings of planes in dazzling leotards. I have to admit I was just a little disappointed to realise it referred to loop-the-loops and flying in formation, which of course is still very cool. It was usually I gather in a tiger moth and she'd talk about loop-the-loop and stall changes and, look, language I don't totally understand. She won quite a few trophies for aerobatics and she loved bombing bombing, like dropping flower bags out of aeroplanes. But she also told me a story that uh, I'm not sure if it was the Brisbane to Adelaide air race, but it was some long flight she went on and got a little bit lost. And so she flew so low that she could actually see the writing on top of a railway station. And she wasn't just daring, she was also fast. Well, that was the big Brisbane to Adelaide air race in 1936. Apparently, she came in before Reg Ansett, but because she was in this twin-engine monospar aircraft, she was virtually handicapped out of winning it. But she would love to tell that story throughout her life. I beat Reg Ansett in the Brisbane to Adelaide air race. (laughs) There's a newspaper article about Ivy as a young pilot in the John Oxley Library, actually but I'm amused to discover it's titled Youngest Competitor Wears Trim Tailored Suit and focuses far more on her fashion than on her flying skills. Miss Ivy Pierce, flying a monospar twin-engine machine, set a new fashion for women pilots. She arrived wearing a smart tailored light suit with a divided skirt. There's even a brilliant line about how clean their engines are in comparison to their male counterparts. 
Miss May Bradford's British Clem Eagle aircraft has been the admiration of all male pilots. It is excellently kept and the engine is always exceptionally clean. Ordinarily, I'd be incensed at the fact that a female competitor is judged more on her fashion than on her flying abilities. But in Teenage Ivy's case, this is all evidence of her future passions. So, other than the rampant sexism, what was it that made Ivy give up flying and take up fashion design? When she became pregnant with my brother, she actually ended her flying career. And that's when she started to become interested in fashion. But during the war, she was actually running one of my grandfather's hotels in Toowoomba, the railway hotel. So here was this woman uh, with all these men running a hotel in a country town. Extraordinary. Extraordinary perhaps, but not exciting enough for Ivy. And around that same time, she got interested in horse racing and um, purchased a quite successful racehorse called Grand Dennis. So she dabbled in that. Ivy didn't get serious about fashion until 1946 when she moved to the coast. Speaking of serious fashion, I asked Lorraine about a photo I found in the John Loxley Library titled The Poodle Bride, which was Ivy's entry into the Gold Coast Concord... Concord. The Concours d'Elegance. Thanks, Lorraine. <laughs> in 1967. That's the most crazy thing that she ever did, really. That's one of the most crazy ones. Yes. It may be the most crazy thing that Ivy ever designed, but the Concorde d'Elegance is the most retro Gold Coast event that I can possibly imagine. Competitors were tasked with designing outfits to match the best cars of the day. In The Poodle Bride, the model is wearing a white veil and a white jumpsuit with full-length white ruffles from ankle to upper thigh. And she's patting a white poodle. It's hard to tell the two apart. Despite this, the main impression I get of Ivy from the photos in the John Oxley Library is of style, which is unsurprising considering her extensive fashion history. But what is surprising is that I would wear the stuff she created today in a heartbeat. Even the outrageous bridesmaids outfits from her wedding photos. Though, to be honest, they're so fabulously out there, they'd probably be more fitting on a drag queen. And she loved the company of drag queens. <laughs> Ivy used lots of bold stripes and kooky designs like 3D diamond-shaped pockets and swimsuits covered in gaudy pineapples and this incredible ensemble documented in the State Library's collection where the model is wearing a flower-shaped hat with a matching flower silhouette on her dress. I love it. I want it. Some of the photos look like they're straight out of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and others like they're out of Strictly Ballroom. They're fabulous and they're fantastic. I donated a few of her um, dresses to our little local historical society on the Gold Coast, and a number of people have said, exactly what you're saying. We could wear those dresses today quite happily. I imagine Ivy sitting in her studio sewing clothes into the wee hours, a glass of scotch by her side and some jazz playing on the radio. But I'm surprised to discover I've got this image completely wrong. Ah, she couldn't sew a stitch. Even though she was a brilliant designer, she wasn't really a great uh, artist as in drawing. She would not have been able to take up a hem of my school uniform. She was never interested in learning sewing. What she could do 
was design. She was a designer. Isn't that interesting? Couldn't sew a stitch. It is certainly interesting. But the most interesting thing about interviewing Lorraine is that she herself is also a dangerous woman. So I find myself not just asking her questions about her mother, but also about herself. I think I inherited her adventurous spirit, and that was mainly in the form of travel. I have visited around 83, 84 countries, and I set out to visit them all, but um, that wasn't possible. So I did daring things like travelling all through the Middle East and North Africa alone. I did have 10 years living in Washington, D.C., and five years living in Copenhagen in Denmark, which was fantastic. But she wasn't just well-travelled. She also took on some pretty interesting work. In Washington, D.C., I, um, I was working at a few different embassies, and then I graduated on to the World Bank, and eventually I was at the International Telecommunications Organization, Intelsat. So they're all under the umbrella of UN. Good old Australian shorthand (laughs) was my passport around the world. Lorene was Ivy's favourite model, though Lorene downplays this during the interview. I'm not a model. I was about five foot three. She may have been short, but she was the spitting image of a young Priscilla Presley. Absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And, of course, still is. I'm not sure whether what I'm about to tell you I should really tell you. (laughs) But, okay, I'm going to go ahead. Another highlight for Mum was entering and winning the Concours d'Elegance. She designed this simply fabulous red catsuit with uh, ostrich feathers around the the hems and it was heavily jewelled with a very deep back line and it had a cape over it with feathers around the cape. That was to match this Lamborghini, black Lamborghini with red interior. And Ivy clearly thought Lorene was the perfect match for the car. Mum talked me into modelling for her. This was not my scene. You know, I had just come back from Lebanon. I wonder if they had prawn frappes in Lebanon. So the night comes and I am absolutely petrified. I was waiting outside for our turn to go in and I said, I can't do it. She said, but you have to. And I said, I can't. And she said, well, here, have this. And she passed me her scotch, which I knocked back. Aha, I was right. Ivy liked a scotch. Next thing, the car is on the stage. And I went down the catwalk. I dropped the cape as I was meant to do. That was fine. And then I went back again. But I was carried away by the applause. So I kept going back and forth and back and And we won, though. She was about to get one of those, you know, things, those crooks that you drag people off the stage when they've been just dreadful. One of the more embarrassing moments, but at least we won the Supreme Award. Lorreen goes on to tell me about the first beauty salon her mother opened on the Gold Coast. I think it was the late 50s. She got tired of fashion and she created the most exquisite beauty salon and it was called Jolie Madame, named after her favourite perfume at the time by Balmain. 
something like we'd never seen before with pink wash basins and floaty, fluffy curtains and a wonderful room with a hot box in it. (laughs) A hot box, which was a type of sauna, I suppose. She offered everything a woman could want, pedicures and manicures and facials and hair, so you could arrive there at nine and leave late in the afternoon. The salon attracted all the it girls on the coast, including plenty of international celebrities. Christine Jorgensen would come and have her hair done there whenever she was uh, entertaining in Australia. Christine Jorgensen was an American GI and the first transgendered woman to have gender-affirming surgery. And mum and Christine ended up being good friends for a long, long time. But then she started to desperately want to be in fashion again. So she sold Jolie Madame and went back to her real passion. By this point, Ivy had been a concert pianist, an aviatrix, a fashion designer, a salon owner. She'd owned a racehorse. And during the wartime, she'd run a regional pub. Lorraine mentioned a fiancé at the beginning of her interview, but he only got a brief mention. And I'm still thinking about how unusual it was for women to divorce back when Ivy left Lorraine's dad and wondering about whether she ever married again. There's an adage that women can't have a family and a career or a partner and a career, I guess, if the kids have already arrived. And I'm interested to hear whether Ivy ever found love again. She had a tempestuous, fabulous love affair. She actually became engaged to a man called Johnny Goldner and he was the resident piano player at the Surface Paradise Hotel. He fled from Europe during the war to South America, arrived in Australia probably around 50, 51, speaking several languages and um, accomplished musician and actually taught mum how to cook. The cliched romantic in me wants this love story to end with a wedding. But Lorene reminds me that fantastic love affairs don't need a Hollywood ending to make them fantastic, just as dangerous women don't need husbands to help make them dangerous. They can do it all just fine on their own, which was definitely the case for Ivy. I think that confidence probably came with her, her life experience. I mean, getting up in a tiger moth, performing on a piano for numerous exams, conquering a pretty horrendous uh, medical condition, getting through a divorce. Ivy had chronic respiratory problems that plagued her her whole life, but apparently every time she went for her medical examination, she used to pass it off as a little cold so they wouldn't stop her from flying. I think all these experiences helped her to become more and more bold, more and more daring. The only thing is that meant that she couldn't be dominated by a man. Johnny Goldner was delightful, but in the end, I mean, they were engaged for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and he said, come on, when are you going to marry me? Well, she just couldn't. She just couldn't. That ended and they they stayed friends. But, yeah, so... I wondered, I've often wondered whether she could have had a relationship with with a man, really. 
flirtations. So, yep, she had lovely flirtations. But to have a man saying you can't or can or can't, no. That, no, no, never. It reminds me of this badge my aunt had that said, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. As Lorene talks more about her mother's fierce independence, I also discover that my vision of Ivy in her workroom with a glass of scotch wasn't completely wrong. She'd often go down there and be there after dinner until 10 or 11, just, you know, fiddling around in the workroom, setting the work for the next day or thinking of a design with a little scotch and soda. That wouldn't have fitted in a marriage. Ivy stayed true to herself her entire life, living the way she wanted and also where she wanted, right in the thick of the Gold Coast action. And while Ivy may sadly be gone now, she has several monuments to her memory on the coast. One is Hassett Place, on the corner of Fernie Avenue and Thomas Drive in Surfers Paradise, that was dedicated to Ivy in 1997, the year before she died. She was living right in the heart of Surfers. She liked to be able to hop out of her apartment and walk right into the centre. The coronavirus restrictions have lifted enough that we've been able to drive to the Goldie to check out Ivy Hassett Place for ourselves. So it's a little patch of green, uh, sort of like a triangle shape, um, and it's in between Fernie Ave and the road that goes over to Chevron Island. So there's a lot of traffic. So there's a little sign that says Hassard Place, and underneath it it says Ivy Hassard, pianist, aviatrix, fashion designer, charity worker, and honorary member of Surface Paradise Surf Lifesaving Club. I didn't know that about her. Came to the Gold Coast in 1946 and helped establish Surface Paradise as a leading centre for ladies' fashion in Australia. That's fabulous. Since the initial dedication, the patch of grass has actually shrunk and is now a tiny strip of land separated into two parts by a road and surrounded by busy traffic. But as Lorraine says, it's still exactly what her mother would have wanted. Mum believed very much in quality rather than quantity. So even though the uh, little park that was dedicated to her is now a lot smaller, she wouldn't have minded this Little place is in the heart of Surface, and Surface was a very special place in her heart. As I gaze down the palm tree flanked roads that lead towards the seedy clubs of Kavalav and then eventually the beach, I'm getting flashbacks to being a trashy teenager sneaking out to go dancing at Cocktails and Dreams. That's where I used to go clubbing underage. It's also where Ivy used to go out. She'd go and sit at the bar and, um, you know, that's where her fiancé used to play piano just down there in, in Surfers. It's where my mum used to go out. She used to go to this bar and she would dance on the piano at the avenue it was called, which we all nicknamed Jurassics because we said it was full of old people. And my biggest fear when I was a teenager was that I would go underage clubbing, not that I'd get caught by the cops, but that I'd get caught by my mother. From what she says about Ivy, Lorraine and I definitely seem to have shared some parallels when it comes to our mothers being party animals. She led a pretty active social life. And Mum and Pearl were inseparable. They were playing rummy, uh, playing cards, and she loved to go to the casino. So did my mum. I have to wonder if Ivy and I ever unknowingly crossed paths when she and Pearl were out on the town. Or even better, whether my mum did. The other visible legacy to Ivy's name is the Ivy Pierce Building, positioned within the Gold Coast Airport Precinct. We'll just wait for that one. 
So you can hear a plane taking off in the background because I have just arrived at the Gold Coast Airport and I'm absolutely busting to go to the toilet. And we are outside the Ivy May Pierce building and the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, use a large part of the building, so I suspect they're not going to let me use their toilet. Oh, hi. Um, I'm just wondering if we're allowed to come into the foyer to look at the Ivy May Pierce placard. Yeah, no worries. I'll send someone down to let you in. I'm actually quite impressed to see that there's a placard inside the building um, about Ivy. So this means that anyone who's using this building will actually know who she was and, you know, the impact she had on um, women in the, the flight industry in Aviatrix. So that's, that's pretty cool. The placard lists all her flight achievements, including the fact that she made headlines as the youngest entrant in the Brisbane to Adelaide air race, recording the fastest time for any woman pilot ever. Wow, that's amazing. I actually didn't even know that myself. She was really fast. And down the bottom, she's in the plane and she's waving. And I suspect that that is the flying jacket that's in the State Library collection, which is making me feel a little bit emotional. The building is large, square and red currently surrounded by building sites during the expansion of the Gold Coast Airport. I asked Lorene whether Ivy would have approved. She would have adored it. <laughs> it's red and big Ivy Pierce written down it. You can't miss it. She would have loved it. Obviously, Ivy's aviation successes are the reason this building has a name emblazoned on it, which is fabulous because, as we said at the beginning of this episode, Women have been famously erased from history. So I'm curious to know whether the streams of people who usually flow in and out of the terminals at the Gold Coast Airport, when coronavirus restrictions aren't in place, that is, know who Ivy was. No, I never have. On the Gold Coast, I fly mostly out of Brisbane, but I do fly into um, the Gold Coast Airport on, on occasion. I'm an airline captain and I've been flying for 25 years. No, never heard of her. Yeah, I'm an airline pilot, uh, domestic operations in Australia. No, I haven't heard of that person. This is precisely why Dangerous Women is such an important podcast to make. We're here to tell the stories that haven't been told, to give a voice to those women who haven't yet been heard. Some of the women chosen for this podcast have absolutely nothing about them in the library archives, which is why this podcast is so important. But even for those such as Ivy Hassard, who already have cardboard boxes dedicated to them in the State Library's impactors, stacked with treasures from their lives, their names still need to be championed to remind us of the amazing women who helped shape Australia as we see it today. Women like Ivy Hassard, who lived by their own rules right to the very end. She said to me, maybe two days before she died, she said, I'd like a big splash in the bulletin when I go. <laughs> I said, OK, what else would you like? And she said, I want my funeral at the Catholic Church at Clear Island Waters, the Sacred Heart Church. And I said, but you're not Catholic. She said, it doesn't matter. They'll do it for me, I'm sure. It's such a pretty place and it will accommodate all the people who are going to come and say goodbye to me. And then she said, not too many hymns, please. I'd like that jazz piano player from Byron Bay to come up and play um, Unforgettable and I did it my way and I said what else mum and she said well I think that's it and I said how about I hire a tiger moth to buzz the church. 
She said, oh, darling, that would be wonderful. I'm going to end this episode with Lorraine's recollections of her mother's last moments alive. To me, it really sums up not only Ivy Hassard's spirit, but also the mark she made on Queensland and the style in which she made it. Fearless, fearless to the end. She took my hand and she said, darling, I've just had the best life. Um, I don't like fashion anymore. <laughs> the, the music is frightful. I've lived at the very best time and I've lived the fullest, richest life and I'm ready to go. She said, darling, this is it. And they came and gave her an injection of some sort and she sort of was slipping slipping into slipping into a, another state. And at that point, they wheeled my bed in because I was going to sleep the night there. They wheeled my bed in next to her and she looked at me, she smiled, and she said, darling, this is magnificent. Well, those were the last words this extraordinary woman uttered. This is magnificent. The State Library of Queensland would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands this series was recorded and produced on, including the nations of Yugara, Turrbal, Yugambeh, Junibara, Bidjara, Yudinji, Irakunji, and the Godigal. This episode was recorded and produced by Erin McBean, sound designed by Patty Priest, and mixed by Simon Berkelman. <laughs>